Hey guys, it's Melissa here from MelissaOatman.com. Welcome to another episode of Awaken Your Inner Awesomeness. I am so delighted you're here with me today because we have a very special guest. Today we have with us Miss Lisa Salisbury. She is a podcaster and hosts Eat Well, Think Well, Live Well. She is also a health and weight loss coach, and she's here today to talk to us about how we need to let go of some of those long-held beliefs that we need to clean our plates and that we need to finish all of our food and she's here to talk to us about how to get more in alignment with our bodies so that we can live our best and healthiest lives and i cannot wait to hear everything that she has to say so thank you so much for being with us today lisa thanks for having me i'm excited to be here with you melissa yeah, I'm excited that you're here too, because I know this is a topic that hits home for a lot of women, especially, but I know that there are men out there listening who probably also struggle with uh, weight or body issues. And I think that this is a very important topic today. So before you start talking about what it is that you do to help women live a healthier life, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you first get into coaching? Yeah. So I do consider myself a recovered chronic dieter. I have was chronically dieting really since high school. I brought home my first diet plan in when I was, I think a junior or senior and my parents were like, Oh, great. We'll do it with you. So <laughs> that started me off with, um, just, uh, many, many years of dieting. I, in my twenties, then I got married and started having children. So for about nine years, I was either pregnant or nursing, it seemed like. And so my weight was just up and down, up and down because I thought I had a lot of thought errors back then. I just was so sure that I needed to get down to my pre body, pre baby body and get my body back. All of these like sayings that you heard. And then back then. And, um, with my last baby, I remember having this thought, okay, this is it. This is the last time I can be fat. This is the thought going through my head. And it's, I look back on it now and I have so much compassion for my past self at that time. Like that, that number one, she thought that, that I had to have permission to eat, right? Like there was a lot of like permission to eat things I wanted to eat. And also just very misinformed about what being overweight was and what being pregnant was, and it just very, a lot of confused messages in my brain back then. So, um, and that was 15 years ago. My youngest is 15 and a half, almost 16 actually. So I then spent a full decade dieting or sometimes just saying, oh, I'm just done. I'm just done and ignoring everything, which meant I ate very unhealthy foods for my body and felt gross and terrible in my body, not because of the way I looked, but actual, the digestion was an issue, you know, all, all sorts of things were issues for me. So I was back on dieting and really thought that the be all end all was my fitness pal when I could count my calories. And when the app would tell me if you ate, if every day were like today, you would weigh this much in 12 weeks. And that never happened. Like it never, ever, ever. I'm in 12 weeks. I never got to that magical number because the problem was my fitness pal or any other counting diet can tell you what you maybe quote unquote should be eating, but they don't tell you what to do when you don't feel like eating that way, or when you have a hard day or when you are 
in a stressful situation, how to manage those emotions without food. And that is what I did not know how to do. And, um, I ended up macro counting, which was kind of the last slippery slope down into orthorexia for me, which is an eating disorder where you have an obsession with eating healthy. So I would call restaurants and try to get their nutritional information in order to log it into my app to make sure I was eating the proper, again, air quotes on that proper amount of protein. I was bringing my kitchen scale to our dinner table when I would make dinner at home and weigh my portion And I do have four children, two of them are girls. And I was doing this in front of them. And um, don't worry, we've had lots of conversations about it now, but I, I would tell them, well, it's because I'm lifting weights and I need to make sure I'm getting enough protein. That's what I told them. They're, they're teenagers. They're smarter than that. Like they, I'm sure they knew (laughs) that I was dieting and trying in some way to change my body shape. And when I found the tools that I learned both in my health coaching certification from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, as well as then in my uh, life coach and weight loss coach certification from the life coach school, I just learned so much more about balanced ways of eating, as well as knowing what to do with the feelings instead of eating. And so that's really what I help women with is worry less about what you're eating and more focus on why you're eating when you're not physically hungry. Yeah. I think that that's a really good thing because I know personally I've struggled with that too. And I, I know why I struggle with things because when you were a kid, at least for me, and I didn't feel well, my mom wanted to make me feel better by giving me ice cream or different foods. And it did make you feel better as a kid, right? Mm -hmm. But we tend to still fall into those same patterns and those behaviors of, well, if I don't feel well, if I'm having a bad day, this food will make me feel better. So we do tend to gravitate towards that as a tool to help us feel better. And, and the, the thing is, as Shonda Rhimes says in her book, year of yes, she said, here's the rub food works. When you come home from a long day and you just want to spackle some chocolate cake on top of that, it does work to calm down the feelings. And so that's, I just always remember in that book, how she said, here's the rub food works. It you, it does tamp down those emotions. And so your brain has learned that you can get a lot of dopamine, which is that feel good, keep you alive hormone when you are eating highly palatable foods and a lot of them. And so that's how we have learned, like you said, from childhood, you know, oh, you had a shot at the pediatrician. Here's a lollipop. Oh, you, (laughs) you know, and, and what's funny too, is not only is it, oh, you lost your soccer game. Let's eat this in sadness. When you win the soccer game, you eat in celebration. Mm -hmm. And so food's the solution to all of the emotions as a child. And it is very difficult to unlearn that, but the good news is your brain does have the feature of neuroplasticity. You can unlearn it. And yeah, that's, that's really what I do for for women. I think it's interesting too, because you brought up another point that you said many of us also from our childhood come with this belief that we need to clean our plates. 
because we get told that. I know I remember my mom saying things like, there are starving children, you need to eat everything on your plate and getting in trouble and having to sit until I ate everything on my plate. And I can remember that very clearly. I sat there until like dark bedtime one night because I didn't want to eat what we were eating. And so that's another, mm-hmm. I call them limiting beliefs, but another belief Absolutely. system that I think causes us to self-sabotage. For sure. And what I find so fascinating about the clean plate club, because it's it's a common phrase that we use I was doing some research on this and I figured out that the clean plate club was actually a government program during both world war one and world war two. So it was started for elementary school kids because there were rations in America. And so our grandparents literally were told in elementary schools, there are starving children in Europe. And we need to conserve. And so the clean plate club was the idea that in the cafeteria lines back then, of course, they were, you know, serving the kids. It wasn't just prepackaged things like they get now. So the idea was you would take just what you needed and you would clean your plate. And that, that was a demonstration that you didn't take more than what you needed. And so you can see how like the origins were not terrible, but then those those folks, those kids raised kids. And then for me, as far as the generations go, that would have been my grandparents. And so my parents then told me in the eighties, well, they're starving kids in Africa because that's where we were sending food at that time. Whereas our grandparents were told there were starving kids in Europe. So it's like, it makes so much sense to me that I'm like, oh, okay. It's just because of the way we were raised. And now we we can actually let that go because we can eat what we need. And if we want to send money or send supplies or whatever you believe in support certain charities to help starving children somewhere else, you don't actually need to connect it to what you are eating. And so we want to disconnect our charity work and those things that you believe in from what you're eating on your plate, because it doesn't, it doesn't connect anymore. Like they were trying to make it connect for the kids, you know, during world war one and two. So one of the other challenges with this is that not only do we still carry this cleaning our plate mentality, but we have a lot of what's called portion distortion. This is from a study in, I think it was 2016. And they were looking at certain sizes of things. Uh, So for example, in the 1980s, the average bagel was about three inches across. And in the 2010s, the average bagel was six inches across. So in 30 years, we have double the size of the bagel and it's still served as a portion. So if you look at your, say your nutritional information on, on your snack bag or your soda or whatever, it might tell you that there's two or three servings in that item, but it's served as a portion. So we're not talking, so serving sizes haven't changed, but the portions we are served have changed. They're still going to serve you that bagel. And you're assuming that that is a portion. So we're getting so much more food and you think like, oh, it's fine. Cause I make food from home, but Even this study found that in cookbooks that have been reprinted, so say, for example, The Joy of Cooking, which was first printed that like in the 80s, and then today, 
the same pan of brownies in the same nine by nine pan, it used to serve 24 and now it serves 16. So it's the same amount of brownies. Now they're telling you it serves less people, which means the portions are larger. So we're even being told by our current recipes to eat more. So it makes cleaning our plate, you realize, oh, okay, I actually have more food on my plate and I think I have to clean it. So you see how these two issues are really intertwined and it gets very in the way of us being able to eat the amount that our body actually needs. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting point you brought up about food labels too, because I think a lot of food labels today are very confusing and mislead a lot of people, especially the serving size mm-hmm. portion. You know, I know a lot of people who think that one container is the whole serving and then you look closely and it says like with ice cream it'll say two tablespoons as a serving or something (laughs) like what what do you mean it's two tablespoons so that can be very confusing and throws people off and even things that are supposed to be labeled as healthy that really aren't that healthy so there's so much confusion and it's really easy to understand why people have no idea what they're doing yeah, at the front of a the front of a food label, the nutrition facts are an altogether different story, but the front of a food label is the last form of advertising that that product has to get you to buy it. And so things that are on that label, just remember when it's telling you it's gluten-free or it's um high fiber or whatever it's touting, it is an advertisement. You want to turn that over and be knowledgeable and look at the nutrition facts if those kinds of things are important to you. If you're actually looking to increase fiber in your diet, don't take the food label on the front because as much advertising as they've done in magazines and online and and whatever they've done, that package is their last ditch effort to get you to buy it. And so they will put a health halo on it to make you think that it is the right thing for your body and you get to decide that. Don't, don't be swayed by those buzzwords on the front of the package. Yeah. It's so um, complicated because a lot of products now are touting that they're high in protein. Mm -hmm. And the trick that I always was taught was that you look at the protein and add a zero to the end of that number and compare that to the calories. And if it's not like close to the calories or at least closer, it's not a significant source of protein, but a lot of packaging says like, yes, this is high in protein. And then you look at it and you're like, it's really not. Yeah. And it could be higher than its counterparts because they've added protein to it. Um, A lot of breads will do this, but it's still not a, an excellent protein source. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And And really what I work with, with clients too, is to do their own nutritional study. So do you need more protein or do you need more fiber? You can't know, like reading all the nutritional studies out there that say this person and this group of people had this result on this type of diet. That's all very interesting, but the most important nutritional study that you can ever read is your own food journal is writing down what you eat without, and I don't have my, my clients do any kind of calorie or macro count or any of that. You just write down, I had oatmeal with berries and a, and an egg for breakfast. 
I had a salad with chicken and a pear for lunch, like just these types of things. And then you look at your symptoms, if any, that you are trying to manage. So like, for example, if you're trying to increase your fiber because of digestion issues, then you can start logging your digestion issues along with those, those foods, and then start to look for patterns. You can also, and if you're not having any issues, sleep issues, or, you know, energy, all of these kinds of things can be monitored and recorded journaled along with your food. And if nothing else, if you're just trying to lose weight, that also can be monitored with your food and you can see, oh, of course my weight jumped up a little because I had a little bit higher carb dinner than I typically do. Just knowing not without counting, you can just look at it and say, oh yeah, pasta dishes are higher in carbs than salads. And so last night I had pasta, which by the way, I do all the time. So I'm not vilifying that in any way, but then you're just like, oh, that makes sense. I had some higher carbs, which require more water to digest. So of course I retained a little water. That means a little higher on the scale. That's normal. I have clients that tell me, well, pasta makes me gain weight. Like, does it though? Or is it just a water weight increase the very next day? And then it drops off when you don't eat pasta that day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably like with everything that moderation and balance with a lot of your foods is what's called for. Now, are there any particular types of um, foods or elements in foods like protein and fiber that you really recommend that people try to get as much of in their diet as possible? Or it, does it really just vary per person? So definitely there's bioindividuality when it comes to you know what foods work for you. Um, probably the universal thing I think more people could, I think people could get more of is water. <laughs> so a, a lot of issues can be corrected with, um, proper hydration, but if you're looking more for like, I just don't know how to construct a meal. I just, I'm not sure where to start. I recommend that you start with protein, fiber, and fat. And so look for what sources of protein do I like and literally make a list. What do I like to eat for protein? I like chicken. I like fish. I like Greek yogurt and cottage cheese. I like eggs, you know, all of the things that are high in protein. And then look at all of the things that you like to eat that are high in fiber. So this includes, of course, all of your fruits and vegetables are going to be fairly high in fiber, um, whole grains. You can, you know, all, there, there's lots of, of other sources of fiber that you can. So I mentioned like packages that say high fiber, you can get things that have fiber added to them. A lot of times there's, you can find them in a sneaky way with, um, what I call other people's diets obsession. I just use, use their weird things. And even <laughs> though I'm not on like say keto, yeah. a lot of keto products will add fiber to bring the total carb count down. So if I want a product that has high fiber, Sometimes I'll look for like something labeled keto, even though I'm the farthest from keto eating as you could possibly get. <laughs> so like tortillas or bagels or um, pastas, you can find like that. Um, and then you just want to make sure that that meal also has a source of healthy fat. So olive oil, avocado oil, coconut oil, um, and then part of a lot of times your proteins will include 
the portion of fat too. So if you are eating eggs, the egg yolk has healthy fat. If you are eating beef, there's plenty of healthy fat in that. If you, um, so sometimes it's coordinating. If you're having nuts, they're actually a source of fat and then a little bit of protein. So that kind of goes back the other direction. Um, avocados are great. So you just want to make sure you have something from each category and then you can sprinkle in the other things. So the other things for me are like carbs that aren't very high in fiber, like pasta or white rice, things like that. I still eat all of those things, but the foundations of my meal, I want to make sure I'm, I'm good on my protein, which just means a, a, a portion that I, that I feel good with. Um, and then definitely fruits and vegetables. And then I add from there, but those are, that's kind of where you want to, the building blocks of your meal. Now I heard something interesting the other day. I'm just interested to see what your take on this is. But one of the things that I heard the other day when I was listening to a podcast was that our diet, like a lot of the foods that are processed these days have a lot less fiber in them. And it's because the food companies don't want us to feel full because they want us to eat more. And so we're not getting, like the typical American does not get nearly the amount of fiber that they need to have. I would hundred percent agree. There are, when you're eating um, ultra processed foods, and I, I want to be clear that when we're talking about processed foods. I mean, the ultra processed, I don't, because anytime we cook something, anytime we put something in a can that's processing, I absolutely eat canned tomatoes, canned beans, canned olives, all of those kinds of things. Those, those processes are fine. So don't, (laughs) there's kind of this like argument about, well, everything's processed, but ultra processed foods that have food engineers behind them. They have modified. Yeah. Yes. But also just like your chips, they, the food engineers know the amount of crunch that's desirable too crunchy. And you're like, Whoa, that echoed in my head. I don't want any more and not crunchy enough. It's not intriguing to the mouth and they could make Doritos more flavorful actually, but they don't because you would get satisfied too quickly. And so they, they, optimize the amount of flavor that put, they put on the amount of sugar and salt, the amount of crunch, the, to optimize the going back for it and, and yes, to optimize how much you're eating. And so absolutely these kinds of ultra processed foods have very little fiber because that kind of bulk fills you up. I think it's a, a really good um, reason where people often vilify fruit and they're like, Oh, you know, too much sugar in fruit. Nobody, not one person is overweight because they're like, I just couldn't stop eating oranges. Like I, I just ate like 12 a day and the sugar in the, like nobody, no one that doesn't happen, right? Like you eat a piece of fruit and you're like done. You don't just eat the entire bunch of bananas. Nobody does that. And I mean, I'm sure someone's like, oh, I knew a person one time somewhere. I'm just saying, typically that's not the reason that, that we are overweight fruit is not the reason it's because we eat much more of the processed food because it is another name for it is highly palatable. It's concentrated down. 
So we've got concentrated sugars, concentrated flours, and then engineered flavors. It's no wonder, like, it's no wonder we overeat those things. I think there's a lot of people too, who think they're eating, like if they're not buying fresh produce, let's say, for example, Uh but say that they buy something in the store and it says, oh, uh, a juice cocktail or this or that. And I think a lot of people get that confused too, because those do have a lot of added sugars to them. It's not just natural, pure juice. And I think that's where oftentimes we see like fruit getting a bad rap when it's not the fresh fruit that you're eating from the produce section. It's just that there are things that are labeled as a fruit juice or this or that, and they're not really pure fruit juice. It is a processed drink or smoothie or whatever it is that you're getting. That's true. Yeah, for sure. I I think if you associate your fruit with juices that that does, I just know for me, like I said, I am a recovered chronic dieter. I've been on so many diets where fruit was forbidden. So I know you've probably got listeners out there that are like, oh yeah, I've had a trainer that told me never eat a banana. I mean, I had a trainer one time that's like, I will never eat a potato again in my entire life. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> I feel sorry for you. It's yeah. dramatic. <laughs> so we just don't need to do that with things that come from the earth. Right. Yeah. I, there's nothing that I've ever seen. And I think it's interesting because a lot of things get bad labels like olive oil for a long time. That was, you know, any kind of oil they said, stay away from. And they were like, wait, there's good oils and then there's bad oils and just with everything it's the same and I think that that is why people have such a hard time with eating right and eating healthy because there's so much conflicting information out there and with all of the different diets that there are like with the keto you're not allowed to have any carbs you know you can't have the pasta you yeah do this or the that and to me I think any diet that restricts what you can have is going to end up probably being disastrous in the end because we want what we can't have right we're like we're going to end up really craving the things that we're not supposed to have absolutely when you are restricting in those kinds of ways there it's just not sustainable willpower is similar to a muscle that it does wear out. This is why we generally don't find ourselves eating chocolate cake for breakfast, but often when we get home at night, we're like, I'm done. And that's when we, you know, go to town on the sweets or the bag of chips. So it's, we, we think we're, I'm going to really do it today. And you're just using willpower and grit and trying to white knuckle through the day. And when you do that with diets and trying to avoid certain foods, it's just, been found to be not sustainable. So what you want to do is rather than start something on a Monday morning that requires you to totally overhaul the way that you eat, I would just recommend that you start with one thing, just literally one thing to either add in or cut out. I'm going to add in more vegetables this week. Like one thing, don't worry about anything else, just going to add in more vegetables or just for the fiber factor, or maybe you decide I'm going to not eat dessert after lunch. Maybe if you're in an after lunch and after dinner kind of habit, maybe you just decide I'm going to not eat, eat 
dessert after lunch. You're not saying I'm cutting out sugar for my life. You're not saying uh, sugar's bad. It's just like, I think I'm going to eat a little bit less. These kinds of habits that you begin are much, much more sustainable. You want it to be just challenging enough to engage the amygdala part of your brain and to engage the part that says this is worth looking at and, and it's a challenge. So you don't want to be like, I'm going to start eating salads for lunch on Thursdays. Like that's not enough for your brain to remember that you're working on something, right? So it needs to be just engaging enough and, and doable so that you can then continue to make changes. And so rather, like I said, rather than overhauling your diet completely on a Monday, I would like for you to make lifestyle changes over the course of three to six months so that in six months, your food journal doesn't look at all like it did on day one, but day one looks very similar to day 10. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Small gradual changes that, because that is what becomes a habit, the things that you do repeatedly over time. And it's, a, it is a lot easier to implement things that way than to just try to overhaul everything in one yeah. day. Yeah. And clients tell me they'll, they'll say, do you think I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life? And I'm like, only do it. If you want to do it for the rest of your life, that's, I only want you to pick things that you feel like this is the way I want to eat. I just want you to care about your health. I want you to care about this vessel that carries your soul through this life for your whole life. I love that. So I want to ask you about exercise because usually diet and exercise go hand in hand. What do you recommend maybe for people who don't exercise currently, or maybe they're they want to start doing something and getting some kind of movement or exercise into their daily routine. Like what, what do you recommend for your clients? First and foremost, walking it's first of all, it's the easiest, freest, you know, cheapest thing that you can do is walk around your neighborhood. If that's not safe or not weather permitting, um, you know, you can get creative on that treadmills, join in gym to use those kinds of equipment. But the other thing to remember as you're beginning movement and exercise and starting to incorporate that is that it makes very, very, very little difference to your weight loss efforts. So if you decide you want to lose some weight and, you know, maybe you're like, oh, my, my joints are really hurting. I hear this a lot. It's like, well, I want to lose weight, but I can't because I can't exercise, but my, because my joints hurt so much, listen, you can lose weight without exercise. So lose some weight until your joints feel better. And then you can start really exercising for other reasons, because exercise is all about your mental health and very, very, very little about your scale weight. So I do, I, I, I would love to like really get into this and all of the technical percentages and stuff, but I do have an episode on this about your non-exercise activity. Thermogenesis is what we, I focused on, on this episode and showing you the numbers on how in your total daily energy expenditure, that's like all the calories that you expend the and calories, meaning the unit of energy. It's all the energy that you expend in a day. 75% of that is just keeping you alive. If you just laid on the couch all day and just 
lived <laughs> your brain. It's like very, very metabolically active. That's you use 75% just, just living. And then you have, um, exercise or excuse me, um, digestion is another one. And, and then you have your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and this is just the moving around, taking a shower, taking the dog on a walk, you know, making your kids lunches, all of those things where you're just moving around is your non-exercise burning. And then only 5% of your total daily energy expenditure comes from your formal exercise routine. For so long, we way overestimated the number of calories that you burned in an exercise session. And it was, it became very confusing, especially to us dieters. I don't know exactly how old you are, Melissa, but I grew up in the eighties. I'm 48. And so my childhood was in the eighties and I really started um, paying attention in the nineties. And I was told when I started my first spin class that I would burn 800 calories in that spin class. There's no way. There's no way. I have a spin bike in my garage now. And um, yeah, that is completely inaccurate. I use an Apple watch, which is pretty well known to be one of the most accurate readings currently that we have. And we just thought that, that we were burning so many more calories. And so then I would be like, well, that was 800 calories. I can eat whatever I want. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. I grew up in the same era and it, same, like the first time I started working out and they said, well, when the numbers were more accurate, it's like, I burned 200 calories and this is working at the absolute hardest. And right. I'm like, I thought it was supposed to burn like six or 700. No, like you burn off the yeah. amount of calories and like a stick of gum or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it's not exercise is really not a weight loss tool in the way that we used to think. And as far as calories are in versus calories out the way exercise is a weight loss tool is because exercise improves our mental health. When we feel better, we tend to make different choices around food. That's why exercise helps us lose weight. It's not about the, the calories. It's about the choices that we make later. So exercise is absolutely the fountain of youth. It helps with all kinds of processes in your body, including your memory and your brain. I mean, there's nothing better you could get your moms or your grandparents to do than to exercise for their brains Mm -hmm. and their hearts. And I, I go to all my mom's doctor appointments with her and every doctor that we go to is like, you need to exercise. That's her sleep doctor, her cardiologist, her primary care, her gynecologist. Everyone is like, do you exercise? And it has zero to do with her weight. Yeah. So it is the fountain of youth. Absolutely. You should start with walking if you're not doing anything. And then if you are already doing something and you want to step it up, I recommend absolutely weightlifting for women, middle-aged, especially reduce your cardio, increase your weightlifting to, um, because you want to maintain your muscle mass and your bone strength through perimenopause and menopause. It's vital. And so we definitely need to combat that natural muscle wasting, which is called sarcopenia. Um, I had a guest on my podcast that says we're not overweight. We're under muscled. And that's part of the issue with menopause is we're like, oh, I'm gaining weight. My metabolism has gone down. That's not really what's happened. What's happened is your muscle mass has decreased through that natural aging process. So we want to combat that with 
weightlifting really as not like, I'm not saying like Olympic heavy weightlifting, but (laughs) heavier than your handbag, please. Like (laughs) put down the five pound weight, pick up something, you know, that's significant. So, um, so weightlifting as much as you can and a couple sessions of cardio a week is plenty. And if you are currently walking and you want to step that up, I'm also been lately a big fan of rucking. That's R-U-C-K-I-N-G. It's basically weighted walking. So it's weightlifting for people who hate weightlifting and cardio for people who (laughs) are, you know, only weightlifters. So it's look into that. If you're, if you're at all interested, I, um, I've really been loving that. And my clients have been too. It's, it's a great lower body workout and still gets you outside. And again, fairly free. I just literally have a, a a plate, a 10 pound plate from my workout, my, um, garage gym in a, in a backpack. And I just throw that on my back when I walk my dog. I can attest to that because when we did family trips to Disney, I was the one who carried the backpack with all of our stuff and it had frozen Gatorades in it. And we're, (laughs) I'm walking through, you know, the, the hot Orlando (laughs) sun. And I always felt like I lost weight on those vacations because I was carrying that heavy weight all the way around and walking. So I, I can attest that it does work. Definitely. Yeah. And this is interesting because you're leading me into what was going to be my next question for you anyway, which was about menopause and how a lot of women struggle with weight during menopause. I've been hearing and reading things lately that say that hormonal, you know, hormones being imbalanced has a lot to do with that. But is there any um, advice or anything you could add to that conversation for any women who are out there going through menopause or maybe they're in perimenopause that are mm-hmm. saying, Hey, yeah, my weight's changed. And it's just since I've been going through menopause and I, and I'm not able to lose it, anything you can add for them. Yeah. Well, I would just emphasize again, make sure that you are weightlifting and prioritizing your protein. Um, just so important to maintain our muscle mass through, through this time. And I am not a doctor and not an expert in hormone replacement therapy. However, ask your doctor about it. I, 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 I hesitate to give advice on that because I'm, I'm not a medical professional, but the research is very clear. The women's health initiative that was done in the early two thousands that scared off a lot of doctors from prescribing bioidentical hormone replacement therapy is, has been totally debunked. I have spoken to a menopause um, doctor, he's an MD and specializes in it. And he says it was the most misogynistic study ever done. And so damaging to women, your, your hormones matter a lot and they affect your sex hormones, your estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and DHEA affect every system of your body. So just because you have dry skin or dry eyes, like that's an estrogen deficiency. Often it might be the climate you're in, and it might be that you have the fan going, but it also might be estrogen. So there's a lot of things. I mean, when you look at the list of, I think there's something like 120 symptoms of perimenopause and menopause. And so we just have been trained as women to be thinking, this is just what happens. This Mm -hmm. is just part of aging. But, uh, a great follow is Dr. Mary Claire on Instagram. And she was recently talking about how there are several things that have been 
corrected for age, meaning women who are the same age, but some have gone through menopause and some haven't. And so we can identify that these symptoms are occurring because of menopause, not just because we're aging, which means it's a hormone problem, right? So absolutely talk to your doctor about it and see one thing I will say from what I've learned is try to avoid oral oral estrogen in birth control form is really not the way to go. You want to go with something that's not going to be absorbed through the gut. So that's going to be patches, topicals, those kinds of things. So avoid, avoid oral estrogen. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, it's so important that you have to advocate for yourself in your health. Yes. Because I know at my doctor, whenever I said, Hey, you know, I'm gaining weight and this is not normal. And I can usually make a few adjustments and it's fine and it's not working. And she's like, Oh yeah, that's what happens when you get old. I was not that response (laughs) at all. So I started doing my own research and that is when I also came upon um, Dr. Mary Claire Haver and I follow her on TikTok, and she has a lot of wonderful videos there where she talks about that. And uh, another person that I follow was talking about the wild wild yam cream, I think is what mm-hmm. it's called, which is mm-hmm. another thing that's not a prescription, but that some women are finding or helping them with the hot flashes and things like that, I think. Yeah. But if you don't have a doctor that will prescribe you HRT, there are some supplements and and creams and things that can be helpful, but that would only be if, if your doctor is refusing, I mean, find a new doctor, but in the meantime, (laughs) yes, you can do something like that. And it's terrible that we have to feel that way that our doctors don't listen to us or that, you know, they're just trying to brush it off and say, you're not there yet because we are, I'm 46 and you said you were 48. Mm -hmm. I'm already experiencing a lot of the symptoms and yet it's like, oh yeah, no, you're not there yet. No, you're not in it. Okay. Well, I'm not just experiencing symptoms out of thin air. Like it's not the flu. It's not anything else that's going around. So I don't know why they won't listen to women, but um, I always think it's a really good idea to have to be an advocate for yourself and to find, uh, you know, doctors who will listen to you. But the information that you've shared so far has been amazing and fabulous. I really appreciate you being here. And I know that it's going to be so helpful to so many people out there listening. Good. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I will say just one last thing. You are in perimenopause just by virtue of your age, your hormones start declining at age 30. And we just don't start to see a lot of the symptoms till a little later but most of us really are in perimenopause, which just means we're in the period before menopause. So just because you're still cycling, just because you're still having a period does not mean you're not in perimenopause. So yeah, take care of yourself and, and don't (laughs) discount your symptoms or deny that they are there and don't let doctors do that to you either. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And you know, another interesting thing that I also saw not that long ago, which I thought would be really fun, was that another um, thing that they're recommending too for exercise besides walking, which I think walking is the best thing, uh, are the trampolines. The oh, yeah. Little, uh, workout trampolines that you can have for your house. And I know I took my kids to a trampoline park 
it was a while ago um, because they're 21 now, but they went for a birthday party. And I remember they said, oh, you should jump with us, mom. And I did. And I remember how much fun we had and it so much exercise. My legs were on fire the next day after doing the trampolines. But I think it's important to find things that you really enjoy because then I think you stick with it, you know? Yeah. It's, it stays a, a habit that you'll want to continue to do if you really enjoy doing it. That really is true. And, and I will say, I, I just kind of jumped in when you asked about the exercise, I'm like, oh, walking strength training. But one of the questions I do ask my clients is, well, what do you enjoy doing? So definitely pay attention to that because any exercise is good. Yeah. Like Unless you're hurting yourself, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. don't hurt yourself, but there, there's so many different exercises out there. And what I love is all of the content creators who offer it on YouTube, you could work out and you don't necessarily have to go to a gym. So if money is an issue, just work out at home, go for a walk, find a routine on YouTube to do the lifting weights. I highly agree with you on that. I regularly lift weights and I think that it's very helpful and I've tend to, as I've gotten older, enjoy doing that more than cardio. Yeah, I do too. I, I don't always feel like it. Sometimes it feels easier just to jump on my bike and be like, I'm just going to zone out and do this cardio because strength training takes more work for me to, you know, pay attention to my form and blah, blah, blah. But I do always feel really great after and it, it feels empowering to me. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here with us today. If there's anyone who would like to check out your podcast that eat well, think well, live well, or maybe they want to work with you or just follow you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. Um, so I'm on Instagram. It's well with Lisa with some underscores. So it's well underscore with underscore Lisa. So lots of uh, free content there. You can, if you're just like, Oh, I just want to like chit chat. I always offer free coaching sessions. So if you want to just figure out if the style of coaching that I do is right for you, you can always schedule a free session with me. So we'll put those links. I'm sure you'll have those in the show notes. Yeah. Everything will be right there so they can click right on it and go and find you. I want to thank you again so much for all of your wisdom, everything that you're doing and for being here with us today. I truly appreciate it. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank all of you for being here with us today as well. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Please leave a positive review from wherever you're listening. And the greatest compliment you can pay me is to join me, or excuse me, is to recommend this podcast to those you think might benefit. If you want to join us on Patreon, you'll see the interview here that we did today. And you'll also get extra episodes of Awaken Your Inner Awesomeness per week. Plus, I do a live card reading each week. So I'd love to see you over there. You can do a seven-day free trial. There's absolutely no hassles. If you don't want to stay with us, you can cancel at any time. We would love to see you over there. I hope you guys have an amazing week. I am sending you so much love and light, and I will talk to you soon. Bye guys.